Hello, welcome to Pod Songs, where we interview inspirational people as inspiration for a new song. Today, my guest, co-host and musical collaborator is Amanda Ann Platt, and her guest is Elaine Pagels. Maybe we could jump in, Amanda, and just talk about the music, because normally I do this half an hour with the band before and then but as you've gone to the trouble of going all the way to see your guest which has never happened before <laughs> maybe it really just, never, happened never before. happened yet so maybe we could just start by talking about you know why you why you drove all the way there and why you chose this guest sure um yeah so uh this has been as as you will know I struggled a lot with picking somebody to interview um I was very intimidated by the idea of choosing a a hero or somebody who I really admired enough to not that I don't admire people, but who I both admired enough to, to want to do this and also felt like I could have a conversation with. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it was just, we, we had a very rough summer. We've had, my family has had some, some pretty big losses this year and um, just a lot of, you know, grief and uncertainty and, uh, mm a friend gave me Elaine's book called Why Religion, uh, which is a, a beautiful memoir that she wrote, I think came out in 2018, so years old now, but, um, and that book, and she'll be able to describe it much more eloquently than I could, but um, in that book, she talks about, you know, her life's work, which is, you know, um, in the field of religious studies, she's done a lot uh, with the, the so-called Gnostic gospels, which I know you're not using that term so much anymore um but uh just which are more sort of um geared towards um the inner experience am i saying that right sort of yes these are these are texts that were circulating in early christian groups um and were censored by the bishops in the fourth century and declared to be heresy which means choice and choice they thought was very bad to people so they censored it all <laughs> and they're mystical texts frankly um and the bishops didn't like that and to sort okay. of try to destroy this so um here. so if my friend sent me this book uh not i'm was not raised in any kind of religious household i'm not particularly religious myself uh and neither is my friend who sent me the book but um you know she, i think she sent it to me sort of as uh as chicken soup for the soul so to speak she just yeah thought. yeah there was a message in the book that I could really uh, benefit from, and and I did. I mean, the, the book was enormously helpful to me, um, and uh, it's just been very, the way that we sort of, uh, this interview came together was really just, the timing of things was very odd, just with just some, some tragedy in my life, and um, reading the book, and then Elaine agreeing to do the interview, and um, the reason that I First of all, I, I've been wanting to just take a trip and get up north. I grew up in New York. I don't, I live in North Carolina now. I don't get back to New York very often. And so I wanted to just sort of get on the road and see friends. Um, and also it was just, you know, I just really, I'm somebody who I feel like, especially as a songwriter, I really like to just be able to get people's energy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so much on Zoom in the past few years. And I just, you know, when I, when I learned that Elaine had agreed to the interview, I was just like, well, I'd really love to be able to sit down with her. You know, if at all possible, it'd be nice to be in the same room. And since I was planning this trip anyway, it really, it kind of all worked out. 
That's funny. Here That's we are. Funny. And you found it. Okay. And I found it. I had trouble getting That's into the building, but I found it. <laughs> That's, That's why I, I, I've never went to Princeton. So. No, that's one of the first, getting in the door is one of the first tests that they do. You have to be able to get in the door. <laughs> uh -oh. I had a bottle of water here too, but uh -oh. oh, well. No worries. Well, well, don't let me hold you back. I mean, you've waited a long time for this moment of setting up this interview. So please take it away, Amanda. Sure. Okay. Wonderful. So um, I'm also, this is also the first time I've ever interviewed anybody. So I've been very nervous. Oh about coming up with questions and sort of well we could just talk I mean, okay where would you start so um you know i think so as a as a songwriter you know when i especially in the last five or ten years you know i feel like so much of what i write about is just sort of the human experience and i i never know exactly what inspires me um but I think more and more, and I, I actually, I did, so I dropped out of school when I was younger and um, I did attempt to go back and get a degree in my mid twenties. And I went to UNCA um, and I was going for a religious studies degree. I, I find, again, I said, you know, I wasn't raised in a religious household, but I've always found it to be very fascinating. My grandmother was a Catholic. She just passed and she, um, you know, so I would learn about like the saints from where I were, St. Christopher that she gave me. Um, so I always kind of had this interest um, just because I, I see religion as just such a, it, it's just always been such a driving force in humanity. I mean, the study of religion is the study of humanity. Um, and, and the study of culture. I mean, it's, it's also how people have shaped particular attitudes and experiences and defined what's good and what's bad and what's allowed and what isn't. And how people are supposed to respond to things. I mean, I realize that it shaped far more in my experience than I ever thought, because I wasn't religious and my family wasn't. They were ex-Protestants. Um, hmm. So what does that have to do with Christianity? Um, you wouldn't think it would have to do a lot, but I found that it, it's part of the culture mm -hmm. in, in, in our social system and our legal system, what people are talking about today in Congress. Mm -hmm. yeah it's all about that so I mean I guess one of my first questions was um why so I would encourage everyone to read why religion because it's a beautiful book <laughs> um mm. whether you you know whatever your particular faith or non-faith or whatever you believe in um and you you know you explain in that book sort of what brought you to want to study religion um you described seeing billy graham when you were 14 which is i live right side of montreat so i'm you know right there by billy graham country um and so you know so i think i i have the sense of sort of of why religion sort of for you from reading the book but also i guess my question is is why why Christianity and why Christianity is such a, I mean, in, in our culture in Western culture, Christianity is so prevalent. I mean, does it kind of come down to like, to the money? Is it kind of like the New York Yankees? <laughs> you know, it's just like, I mean, it's the most, uh, it's just so most widespread. It's so widespread. Tradition in the world. And why, no. I mean, what makes a religion really fly? Because there's so many that didn't really make it or this is allowed or, you know. Yes, you're right. But let's go back before that. I mean, um, I study religion. I mean, uh, I wrote in the book about the person I was going out with thought I was really crazy. Like, how do you do that? And, and his colleagues thought more so because, I mean, 
they were theoretical physicists. I mean, what did they know? So they thought, well, what does it mean to study religion? You must be some overgrown Sunday school teacher, or you just never got over it, or whatever, you know, never grew up is what they meant. Because they don't understand that it's not a it's not the same thing as being a clergy person or you know wanting to be a minister or anything like that. This is a way of inquiring about how your own views are shaped and how the culture puts pressure on people or not in various different ways, what it encourages and what it doesn't. So I was brought up like you without my family wasn't religious. My father had given it all up for Darwin and he had been in a particularly ferocious kind of Presbyterian family where they argued about hell a lot and he hated that. So he said, oh, I'm done. As soon as he found out about science, he said, these are silly old folk tales. Who needs that? Only, only stupid people. I mean, he didn't say that, but it was pretty clear that anybody with half a brain would, would have nothing to do with it. And that was certainly his view. And so the idea that I would look at it as a cultural phenomenon was a surprise. But I fell into it, as you said, Amanda. I was taken to a Billy Graham crusade when I didn't know who this man was. I was 14 and I was bored one afternoon in a small town with nothing going on. And I was invited to go to San Francisco and a lot going on. So I went. And it was very powerful. It was emotionally very powerful. Um, he talked about America in ways that my immigrant grandparents on both sides, this was the greatest country in the world, right? the most moral and the most righteous and the gold standard for everything good. Mm -hmm. That's what they, they, they taught. And uh, I sort of imbibed that patriotism and I share it to some extent. I love this country in some ways. But we were just becoming aware of the Vietnam War that was very different from the way it was publicized. Growing up in California, I didn't know anything about racism, really. Just about zero. Yeah. And we found out that people were being beaten and killed and uh, put in jail for trying to end segregation. And uh, things were happening in this country that was awful. We had a president who said he wasn't a crook, but he was. That was Richard Nixon from my home state of California. So I fell into this evangelical group. And then I wrote about how I fell out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that had to do with uh, the loss of a friend, where you had a friend who was killed in a car accident. Yes. Um, I, I joined this evangelical group for a year, and it was very intense and very powerful. Everyone's together praying to Jesus and all brothers and sisters in Christ, and it was all kind of a, a group when you're 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. um, but as Amanda knows, when uh, one of my friends was killed in an automobile accident one night after a, he was with somebody driving too fast and the car slipped and he, he was 16 and he was suddenly dead. And I went back to my evangelical group, just shattered, um, 
this very vivid line. He had dropped out of school too, to paint. He was a painter. He was a brilliant person. He was 16. He was far away thought he was crazy. Tried to put him in a mental hospital. And the psychiatrist said, just let him paint. But anyway, that happened. And I went back to the group and I said, my friend was just killed in an accident. And he said, that's terrible. Was he born again? And I said, no, he was Jewish. And they said, well, then he's in hell. And I, I just felt like I was sucked in the stomach. So I just, I was utterly stunned. Hmm. And I walked out of there. I never went back. It was just like, I thought this stuff was about love. Mm-hmm. But some of it wasn't. Yeah. Well, and that's a really interesting thing that I find because, you know, I, I think part of what drew me to want to study religion um, is that, you know, it, it can be about love. And it seems like at the root of it, you know, if we want to get very, um, I mean, I'm not a religious studies scholar, so I have to be careful not to get out of my depth here, but no, say whatever. I mean, it does seem that, um, you know, it, it gets very wrapped up in politics and you know it seems like at the source you know religion is something that people have always needed to some extent and whatever that looks like you know i here there's another question that i want to get to but you know back sort of you know you go back hundreds and thousands of years and it's a lot more sort of um it seems like the things that people were ready to believe you know now that we have you know so much science and sort of you know, we rely on science for a lot more. People are going to be more skeptical um, if somebody, you know, says, I saw I saw God in a vision and this is what they told me I had to do. And, you know, people are going to be like, well, are you nuts? You know, um, whereas at a different time when her understanding of science was not as, well, not what it is today and when suffering was much greater because just survival was more of an everyday gamble, um, you know, it, it was something that humans really uh, had to have to sort of structure their their lives um, and make sense. Of it, it is that, but you know, we talk about what people believe, and there are kind of religious traditions, as you said, in every culture. We we talk about what do Muslims believe, what do Buddhists believe, what do Jews believe. It's 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 the wrong paradigm in many ways. Because it's based on Christianity, which set up a set of beliefs in the fourth century. So people where this is a dominant religion always assume that religions are a bunch of beliefs. But actually, for for most cultures, they're the way our people live. You know, they're how we eat. It's what we eat. Do we eat animals? Do we eat vegetables? Which animals can't we not eat? (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm thinking of dietary laws and Hinduism and Judaism and stuff like that. Um, It's about who are your relatives? How do we count parents, relatives, brothers, sisters, cousins? Uh, Who's included in the kinship group? Who can you marry within a culture? Mm -hmm. All the questions anthropologists ask, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What happens when we die? Do, do we bury the dead? Do we burn them? Do we throw their bodies out in a, in, in a dustbin? You know, what the culture does, that's the religious 
traditions, which you talk to like native tribes or Orthodox Jews or Hindus or Buddhists, it's not about a bunch of beliefs as much. Mm -hmm. So I began to realize this when I was in East Africa and um, my husband and I were traveling to visit some friends there. And the host was, was from the Dinka tribe in, in uh, Southern Sudan. And he gave me a book of creation stories of the Dinka people. They are the people who live way down south. Mm -hmm. And he, he's a member of the Dinka tribe. And um, when he was in England, he wrote about his, the Dinka stories of his people and how they understood the world because he knew the British had no clue <laughs> of, of how they did. Um, and so I learned from him, it was not about a bunch of beliefs, but about what's right in our culture, what kind of sexual practices, what kind of uh, marital practices, what kind of, what work women do, what work men do. That's all in Genesis. Mm -hmm. It's all about what men do, what women do, what marriages are legitimate, what sexuality is for. They have basic questions. So it's kind of, um, it sets up society. It, it helps people live together. Because if you're sort of, I'm imagining here, if you're, you know, again, if you're sort of in a, an environment where survival is, is harder to come by, it helps to stick together. It helps to have a cohesive society. And if everyone, it's kind of like traffic laws, right? Everyone has to right. obey the traffic light or there's going to be but I think life is always hard to come by. Even, even for people like us who have so many advantages right. over most of the people who've ever lived in the world, right? Right. And that's the, you know, that was a question that I, I sort of had an order here, but it's, we're just going to go. <laughs> um, you know, so, so there seems to be this question of, of, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, you know, if you do all the things that you're supposed to do, in, in the religion or just the societal order, how can something terrible happen to you or, or to somebody innocent, like a child? You know, how can we, um, how do we make sense of that? And it does seem that, you know, that is something that, that people that have a religious practice or religious group, it seems like that's something that is accounted for maybe, um, but it's also interesting to me because it seems that um, and I was thinking about, you know, in the song Amazing Grace, I think what is the line? It says, "Twas grace that brought, taught, brought, taught my heart to fear and yes. with grace my fears relieved. So it's this really interesting idea of like, so if, you know, if we have a God that set up the universe, you know, uh, God is sort of responsible for the pain and suffering, but then also the relief is in God. Well, not everywhere. It just depends what kind of God. Right. If you set up, a, if you set it up the way the Hebrew Bible sets it up, and you have a God, and you say, "Well, God is all powerful and um, is good. He's just and he's good, and he can do anything." Then you have a problem. You say bad things happening to good people. Well, there's birth and there's death, right? So what's good and what's bad? I mean, death may not be bad under some circumstances. Um, but if God is all powerful and all good, 
and something terrible happens to someone you love, right? Um, you've set it up that something is wrong with you or with God, <laughs> but and the Bible says you can't you can't blame him. Um, we sinned. I mean, nobody would die according to Genesis. Right. Nobody would die if somebody hadn't done something terribly wrong. Now, this is. Do you believe that? I don't believe that. I mean, I believe death is Biology. as organic and natural as the Stoics would say. You know, uh, Marcus Aurelius, who, whose uh, many of whose children died very young, said, "Death is as natural as birth. It's it's not good or bad. It's just the way life is." But but he didn't have a god who set it all up that way. Mm. If you have a, the Greek gods, you know, um, Aphrodite. For example, she, if you read to Homer, she, she can make you very beautiful, like, like uh, Helen of Troy. So beautiful that, you know, people will fight a war for the beauty of this woman, mm -hmm. supposedly. But Aphrodite can turn on you. She mm -hmm. can destroy you. She can get very mad. And it doesn't matter if you're her favorite, Helen of Troy. In, in, in the Iliad, she's about to destroy Helen. Mm -hmm. you don't do what i tell you i'm going to kill you basically and the gods are like that they they they're like the sun you need it to survive it can kill you it, it, they're like water which we need to survive but it can drown you they're like the weather sometimes get good and sometimes they're bad you don't have a problem with bad things happening because that just happens mm -hmm. But if you say God is good and he and he could do anything, you set it up that then you have a problem. That's what I realized when I was writing about this. That the Hebrew Bible sets it up that if something happens to you that is unfortunate and, and devastating, as happens to most of us, it's your fault. You did something wrong. That's completely a construct of our culture. I don't mean grief is, because grief is known to anyone who's ever lost someone they love, which is everyone. But not everybody interprets it as a punishment. It's just seen as part of nature. So it's our culture that has set it up to create guilt when it happens. We talk about survivor's guilt. In, in some Buddhist cultures, as far as I understand, if somebody dies at the age of 40 unexpectedly, they say, well, that's that person's karma. That's what person came into the world with. That's as much energy as that person had in this lifetime and then goes on to another lifetime. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. That's just like you plant some seeds and some of them grow and some of them don't. That's just nature. Yeah. There's no blame. Right. Um so I wonder too, with the way, you know, we talk about kind of setting, you know, the way that that a religion such as Christianity can be set up to sort of, you know, it, it might give structure that is really necessary. Um, it can also maybe cause undue pain just through sort of having very strict 
So maybe something as our, as we change, you know, so we, we don't face, like you were saying, we don't face the same, I mean, you know, not that there's no suffering and, and terrible things still happen, you know, we can never change that, but just like, you know, we're not being chased by lions every day. That's something that, you know, unless somebody escapes from the zoo, that's not really something that we worry about. But, but I do think that, that the way we experience loss, for example, um, when I was writing about it, I realized that you know, people feel guilty when someone they love dies. And we call it survivor's guilt, we're so used to it. Um, because we take it, our culture has taught us that it's punishment. And you don't have to be religious, you don't have to be Jewish or Christian. It's just built into the culture. That, mm-hmm. um, the way shame is built into the culture by the story of Adam and Eve, or the idea that men are superior to women and rightly should rule over them. That's in Genesis too. So all of those cultural messages are things that you think nobody's listening to anymore, but they've become part of the culture, part of our legal system. Right. Just in the, kind of baked in. Yeah. Like attitudes about sexuality. There's only one normal kind of sexuality. That's in Genesis also, mm-hmm. because all sexual acts are, are for procreation. Mm-hmm. So we have a professor at Princeton who wrote the Defense of Marriage Act for George W. Bush. Oh. And he's channeling the Catholic Council of Bishops, Professor Robbie George in politics. He's a Catholic. And he basically says, marriage has to be between one and one because it's all about procreation. And you have to have the sexual equipment, even if you never have children, even if you're too old to, even if you have no intention. It's all about that. And that's also set up in this culture that way. So why do you think some people are still sort of clinging to that when it, you know, you could say easily make the argument, well, we're sort of overpopulated. There's a lot, there's a lot of people in the world. We're not so concerned with, you know, yes. we're, we're making plenty more people, you know, um, why is it anybody's business what you know two consenting adults do like why is this still why do we still have these sort of i i think these things are deeply in the culture and that you know the way we look at them oh they're certainly baked into british and american legal codes for example Mm -hmm. so the study of religion i really feel my job is first of all i'm not here to be a teacher of religion or tell you how great it is. Um, I'm exploring how it affects us, right? Uh, psychologically, socially, politically, um, for better and for worse. And it does both. I think it has a huge role in human culture. I was just talking last night to a friend who was brought up in Iran in Muslim culture. And she said, you know, I'm not a Muslim, but her attitudes about being a woman are deeply shaped by being a Muslim. Mm. Um, and you have to cover the hair because it's inciting men to lust and so forth. Mm-hmm. Those things she can't escape, mm-hmm. except she came to America to escape. Yeah. But if she were in Iran, she can't escape it, not in Afghanistan, not in many parts of the world because yeah. that's so much part of that culture yeah so i wonder sort of almost to play devil's advocate uh well not exactly since it's not the 
the direction that the conversation has been taking, but just, you know, so if we have sort of these, um, so to say, you know, that, okay, so this, this was all for a reason, you know, like, let's say the reason that, that people needed sort of this structure was, was to band us together and have the safety in numbers and society, um, you know, how would it have been different? So the, the gospel of Thomas, for example, that you write about in Beyond Belief, um, is, it seems to be, it's much more, could you talk just a, a little bit about the difference between like, what is, what is mysticism in religion? Okay, sure. I mean, this is really interesting. I, I got interested in the history of Christianity um, because I got very captivated by this evangelical preacher. And then I left that group. I went off and just abandoned the whole thing for five years and then thought something about that experience is very powerful and positive. It opened up, it opened up my imagination in many ways. I felt like I'd been living on a flat earth when I was told there's nothing in the world except what you can prove empirically. It's a too, it's too narrow a world. <laughs> so what is it that, that I was missing? And I went back to find out what do we know about the beginning of the Christian movement, how it started, why would anybody believe this stuff anymore? And suddenly our team of graduate students at Harvard had a sort of elephant fall on our heads in the form of a huge gift from 2000 years ago, uh, a find of 51 ancient books, um, 51 ancient books this is one volume out of five. Got them right here. Oh, I've got five of them. These are Coptic texts. And these ancient books include at <laughs> least five gospels about Jesus and his disciples, which I'd never heard of. The gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of Peter. Wait a minute. Where were these? Well, as I said, they were written in those early centuries, but they were censored by what became the bishops of the Catholic Church when the movement turned into an institution mm -hmm. and allied with the Roman Empire. Right. So then, as you said, you need structure, you need changes to the legal code, you need all kinds of things. It becomes a political as well as a religious uh, institution, which allegedly gives meaning to your life but it also gives you a whole set of rules. Right. And do you think, so I wonder, you know, so this is the, the mysticism is more sort of internal. It's more about your well, knowledge of, of God or your relationship yes, with God. But what they did was leave out a whole lot of stuff that wasn't useful for building an institution, right? which you're calling mysticism, which has to do with certain kinds of elusive religious experience, spiritual experience, intuitions, visions, dreams, mm -hmm. synchronicities, who knows, right? All kinds of mysteries. And, and those traditions were excluded because they're very private to you or me. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you, so if those hadn't been excluded, if that had been, I mean, do you think, do you think that there was a reason? Do you think that I mean, how, how do you think humanity would have looked different? How do you think the sort of the progression of if it hadn't just been, okay, these are, this is what is going into the creed. This is what we're yeah. going with here. If it had been more sort of a personal individualized experience, how do you think we'd be different today? It would be much wider open, much more available to 
your experience, the three of us have very different lives, right? And very different experiences. And we would, we wouldn't have the cohesiveness of a single cultural story, which we do, even though we're quite disparate, you know, in place and time. Um, but I also think it would have more powerful kinds of personal experience validated. I would, because see, I don't think religion is about a bunch of beliefs. Those are set up in the creed and they're written down and you have to believe that if you're orthodox. And that word means um, straight thinking, uh-huh. orthodoxa. I always think it's like orthodontia, which means straight teeth, right? <laughs> orthodoxa is straight ideas. And, and the, the bishops are all for straight ideas, which are their ideas. <laughs> you can't have your ideas. Mm-hmm. You can't say, I had a dream and this is how it seems to me. Right. So nobody can say that now. So it, we're private, kind of, there's not going to be another Jesus. Interpretation. If there's another Jesus, it's another Jesus. Gonna believe he, he won't be the right one. He won't be the right one. No. <laughs> He's out. Right. The role has been one. taken. Gotcha. <laughs> so the Catholic Church has claimed to be the only institution granting salvation in the world, right? And, and, and that's how it became very powerful and still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but these texts, really, Amanda, they, they open up your experience. They're more like poems. Is it the Dead Sea Scrolls? Or no. Different? They're close. They were found exactly the same year as the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was 1945. These were found. <laughs> Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Israel, right? As the library of a long lost Jewish group um, called the Essenes, which means the holy ones. They were living in a community, a kind of monastic community, trying to live a holy life, sort of a precursor of monasticism. And these texts were found actually, Jack, the same year uh, in Upper Egypt, buried in a cave because the bishops had said, burn those. They took all these texts written in Greek, like the New Testament, and they piled them up and burned them and destroyed them and censored them completely because they would open something to your interpretation or mine. And so that's why these institutions close off your experience. You know, they tell you it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. or you are guilty or you're a sinner. and we'll, we'll forgive you, but you have to go through the right rituals. Right. And we'll be the authorities to tell you how to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Did I hear that they also, in the fourth century, took out reincarnation from the Bible? They did. And it wasn't in the Bible so much, but it was in the writings of the most brilliant Christian thinker of the time. He was an Egyptian. His name is Origen. Uh, he was living in Egypt the second and third century when these texts were being read and he read this stuff and he had an amazing imagination he's one of the great fathers of the church but 500 years after he died and was declared a heretic by the catholic church for saying that he thought that even the devil could could find his way back to god because god created everything and the devil was after all an angel in the beginning but yes um that's what happened Mm, obviously get more control over it easy to leave your money to the church if you know you're not coming back (laughs) well i hadn't thought of that but but that's interesting i i was talking to people who were catholic monastics who said 
that um, if you were to devote yourself to the church and you had money and you didn't have uh, family to pass your property down to, it would go to the church. And he thought that was an important factor. But, but yes, reincarnation is one of many um, ways of perceiving and thinking that was shut off deliberately. And what you call mysticism. I mean, these texts talk about dreams. They say that Jesus not only taught publicly what's in the gospel of the New Testament, but he also taught secretly to certain disciples. And he told them things that he didn't tell the others because the others weren't ready for it. And the gospel of Thomas found in this collection claims to say, these are the secret teachings of the living Jesus. And, and the disciple Judas Thomas wrote them down. The gospel of Mary claims that Jesus said certain things to Mary that were secret. And she was a disciple who learned things. He didn't tell Peter and Peter got very angry. He said, you wouldn't talk to a woman and talk to us, are you serious? And in the gospel of Mary, she wins the argument. So that is one of the censored books. That has, yeah, that has to go. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it was found in Ethiopic, translated into Syriac and Coptic and Old Russian and Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, hundreds of languages at the time. But it only survives in a fragment in Ethiopia, in Ethiopic, with where Mary Magdalene is revered as a great disciple. If you go to, you've been to Israel? Jack? No, never. Well, if you go to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus spent the night before he died, there's a beautiful church, one of the most beautiful I've ever seen, um, the Church of St. Mary of Magdala. It's a Russian Orthodox church with gold and blue. It's just brilliant. But there she's a holy saint. And these traditions about her are revered, but they're rejected in the Catholic Church. That said she was a prostitute. Right. And so was that... Do you think it was purely because she was female? It's probably, we think it's because there were women who claimed to have the same authority in the churches as men. Mm -hmm. And some of the men didn't think that was a good idea. So they fought this battle out on the question of whether Jesus would allow his disciples to be women. Mm -hmm. And the people in favor of that said, well, Mary Magdalene was a very important disciple. And Pope Leo in the fourth century, I believe, said, no, she was the prostitute who, who washed Jesus's feet with her hair and repented. And she was demon-possessed. She was a dreadful woman. She, she's a whore. So she gets this reputation <laughs> in the West, and painters are able to make portraits of her that are, are enormously sensual because you can't do these sort of sensual half-naked women if they're not a prostitute like Mary Magdalene or a penitent who looks like she's, you know, totally destroyed. I mean, that's the image of women that is more suitable for the society that was set up for a couple thousand years. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not just about Peter and Mary mm -hmm. Magdalene. It's about how women are seen and how men are seen. For example, that's one example. Mm -hmm. I guess there were some, maybe there were some victories. Like, imagine if, if um, it was, you could have more than one wife if Jesus had gone down that road or he could 
Catholic Church. I mean, people like Trump or or uh, Clinton would have had they would have had harems, wouldn't they? And then they you'd have all these young men who had no partners going off to fight wars and uh, yeah. having all this pent up energy and. Well, it's it's funny, Jack, but um, our our professor here, who who wrote the Defense of Marriage Act, basically says marriage must be between one man and one woman. And he was in my class, and I said, actually, um, actually, that's not what the Bible says. And he said, but, and I said, well, it's in the Hebrew Bible, it's one man and one woman, and it's really one man is, you know, it's one man and his woman it and it, it's one man and as many women as he can afford because women were property like cattle and if you were wealthy and like uh, oh. david you could have several if you were solomon you might have a thousand so polygamy is the rule in ancient israel oh, really and it's completely legal depending on the fact can you afford it if you can afford four households yes or a thousand but but at the time of Jesus, some Jews were thinking about monogamy because actually Greeks and Egyptians and Romans were monogamous. And they, they looked askance at polygamy. Mm-hmm. So some Jewish groups and the followers of Jesus living in the Western cultures uh, followed the pattern of monogamy. But that's another example of the way the society shapes you. Yeah. It's, so that's sort of the link here, because I wanted to ask, too, about sort of I know you've written a little bit about um, sort of your own quest of, of asking about, you know, religious experience versus insanity, you know, like how, how do we, how do we distinguish that? And you know, something that's always struck me as an interesting story is the beginning of Mormonism, you know, kind of looking into a, a hat and saying, I have, I, I know the answers, whatever. I, I am uh, ignorant in the exact way that that happened, you know, but um and that's just a more modern example. I mean, that we're talking, I can't remember what year that was, but it was not, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, so like, how, how, does, how is that, how does that kind of take off, you know? I think you're totally right. I mean, when people say Mormonism is, these people have really weird ideas. I thought we looked at early Christians, <laughs> but somehow that's legitimate. Yeah. <laughs> Right? It's like it's almost like it's like grandfathered in, right? Because it's but, so old. But you know, I I really I've really come to the conviction. I, I'm very much interested in the psychology of religion, and the sociology and politics, and I really believe that the psychologist William James, who was you know a brother of Henry James, you know his book. Uh, I read pieces of, of it. School, yeah. Varieties of religious experience. He wrote it in 1912. It was a series of lectures he delivered at the University of Edinburgh, and he basically said. What we're missing in most Christianity, and Christianity was all he knew, um, is what the experiences people have of sometimes having a strange dream or encountering God or having a vision or something that doesn't really fit our scientific paradigm. But he said people actually have those experiences. And And my colleague at Stanford, Tanya Lerman, wrote a brilliant book called How God Becomes Real. I have a note I heard you talk about and, that. And that. what she shows, Tanya's not religious herself. She's a secular Jew um, who got interested in religion because some of her family got into evangelical Christianity. And it is a very interesting subject in anthropology. 
So she began to realize that anthropology is not about a bunch of beliefs, just. It's about ways of life. It's about the way you walk and the way you sing and the way you, the way you uh, move and, and with whom and how. And, and those are practices like those that Orthodox Jews do, or those that um, evangelical Christians do, those that Buddhists do with meditation and fasting and prayer. Those get you into different states of experience. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you don't sleep for three days, you get very susceptible to the imagination. Mm -hmm. And James shows, and I think he's right, and Tanya agrees, I, I think so too, that what gives rise to religious imagination is also what gives rise to very odd states of being. So it's almost on a continuum with, with brilliance, imagination, creative, creative achievement, and insanity mm -hmm. at the same time. It's, it's on a continuum. And it's very hard to know where those stop and start. And so it's kind of explosive, this kind of energy, these kinds of explorations. And people are suspicious of it for reasons, because I was just reading about a group of Americans who went off to India to make them create perfect society in an ashram with Sri Aurobindo and ended up dying horrible deaths because they refused any medical treatment and they kept believing they could overcome death if they just tried hard enough. And they tried harder than anyone can imagine. And the, the results were horrible, horrible. And I thought the first rule in religion should be like it is for medicine, first do no harm. Mm. But this, this was one that harmed a whole lot of people and a lot of things to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Religions can be powerful in war because they create such strong feelings. I was working mm -hmm. on the book of Revelation because a president 20 years ago started a war in Iraq that's 20 years on ago. the basis of the book of Revelation. And he persuaded his, his listeners, evangelical Christians, that American bombs were delivering the wrath of God that was predicted in the book of Revelation. And I was so are you out of your mind? So, yeah, well, I didn't, I couldn't ask him that. How do you do that with the book of Revelation? This is written 2,000 years ago. It's not about Iraq mm -hmm. and American oil. <laughs> Probably <laughs> a little to do with food. Sure, that's not in there, no, no. <laughs> shock and awe, shock and awe right. is about American bombs over Baghdad which happens to be Babylon, Israel's ancient enemy. And the book of Revelation talks about how God is destroying Babylon with brilliant light and explosions of sound louder than anything and people on earth dying, God, uh, dying, crying for God. And, and people in that group were reading this as the bombs of Americans killing Iraqis. And I wrote that book because I wanted to figure out how do you do that? And the book itself lends itself to that. So I'm just saying many people have sort of 
Covenant or ground on the Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Many groups. Why do you think that's in there? Why is Revelation in the Bible? Because it's a powerful visionary account. It's it, the visions are very strong. If you look at the art, I was also fascinated with the art that artists create, particularly William Blake, but countless artists. The art and the the films that have come out of that are just mm-hmm. extraordinary. That's what I mean by imagination, creative imagination, mm-hmm. but also horrible things. Yeah. Out of it. You know, so mm-hmm. I wrote a book about the origin of Satan, um, which I thought was kind of an easy target because Satan's kind of a cartoon kind of guy, right? <laughs> and I found out that actually. The stories about Satan are the background of Christian anti-Semitism, and I didn't even know it. Oh, wow. And that's what that book is about. And I just thought, what? Yeah. I wasn't looking for that. But the, but the story about how Jews killed Jesus. Mm-hmm. Is in Who was story. a Jew, right? I mean, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew, but the only people blamed for his death in Matthew's gospel are Jews and not Romans. And that's absolutely counter historical but it was necessary anyway it's a whole story but the point is we have to understand the potential for greatness in these resources and also for really getting you way off track you know so even though so you know i know that it was an argument i know from reading your work that you know it was an argument of sort of burying these these texts um that maybe they they were dangerous in that way if people were interpreting things too much for themselves and people could get out of line you know go off the rails and bedlam yeah. yeah um but people use what's written to do horrendous well that's things. perfectly true and i do think there's this liability in religious traditions you know um it can lead people to terrible things you know god told me to kill these people whatever people I, I was visiting Stanford where Tanya Lerman is and she set up a lunch for me with 12 psychologists and so I said okay so if somebody comes to you and says I have visions do you assume the person is pathological is delusional and they sort of said well yeah <laughs> well I think people do have religious experiences one of my Good friends who's a poet wrote a poem about how the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. Beautiful poem. She's a well-known poet. He said, how did you write that? Her name is Mary, too. She said, well, I had an experience like that. She was raised Catholic. She said she had this experience of divine love coming to her. And it was a very beautiful moment. So she wrote this. She said, but I couldn't say it was about me. And I said, well, why not? She said, what's the last to go? But the, the other thing, Amanda and Jack, is that people do have what I call now experiences I can't explain. And I've had them too. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't have them too long ago, but people have them with various help from other chemicals. Um, and they lead into different kinds of experiences. Sometimes very disturbing and sometimes absolutely glorious. Um, so 
I think it's important to know that this is part of our human makeup that we try to create meaning. And it's very important how we do that. Mm -hmm. And to be careful not to let other people tell us what it is. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, how, you know, I just, as we're sitting here talking, it just occurs to me, it's, you know, there is, there is sort of this taboo now of, you know, you can't, yeah, because you would be crazy, you know, if you, and even, you know, we, you know, me and my friends, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like a lot of times before we, if I'm going to tell somebody like, oh, I have this feeling about something or, you know, I have this intuition or I have this experience, you know, I would preface it with like, this is a little woo woo, you know, like we kind of <laughs> is sort of, um, you know, many of us, obviously not everybody, but, but many people sort of have religion has kind of become this, uh, I can't think of the word, but you know, this it's a sense of delusion, right? Well, or something. And it's like you said, your father would say it was kind of, it's, it's almost associated with, um, you know, people who are, who are too ignorant to either to ignorant or just a little unbalanced or a little crazy right and I you know and I'd like to because I don't want to you know it's, it's easy to sort of get into all of the negative things that have come out of religion but clearly there's been a lot of beauty and good and and um and I do think that you know ultimately it's something that that gives a lot of people comfort and, and oh, yes. purpose um yes so you know I, I wonder now like do you think are we moving into a time where religion whatever that looks like is a little bit more of an internal experience or you know as it seems it seems to me that it's sort of you know church has become more of sort of a you know I know plenty of people that go to church but um it's certainly not something that everybody does anymore right well many many more people now like you your grandmother was catholic and quite seriously devout I would say in some ways um and you're not doing that. Um, I think that is, many people are wanting to get in touch with their own authentic experience and not be told how they're supposed to react or feel or, or act or behave in, in the ways that those institutions do teach mm -hmm. and the way that they also can make people feel very guilty for things for which they're not guilty. Um, like the loss of someone close to them. That's something I had to write about because when it happened to me, um, you know, the death of my son when he was six years old, some really rare disease, I, I somehow felt it was my fault that I couldn't fix him, I couldn't save him, we couldn't go to doctors anywhere in this country who could do anything. There was nothing to do. Um, and I felt like a terrible failure and, and felt guilty about it on top of it because you're supposed to protect your child. And I realized that I had to do this exploration to realize that in the Bible, there's a story about um, David, King David lusts for someone else's wife and he, he goes and gets his attendants to take her when her husband's away and bring, him, bring the woman to him and he has sex with her and she sends him a note and says, I'm pregnant. And then he got very nervous and tried to get her husband to come back from the front lines so that it would look like his child, but it didn't happen. And, um, and then the Bible says the child died. 
because of the sin of David and Bathsheba, because they weren't married. And because he raped her, basically. And now, that's probably not why that child died. But, but the baby, the baby's death is a punishment. Somebody did something very wrong. And, and I realized that's how this culture interprets mm -hmm. that. And I was writing for other parents who had similar experience because uh, there are many families in this that I've even heard about who've never even mentioned things that happened in their family life, the loss of a child. I mean, it's just too much of a shame. It's shameful because they feel guilty even though it has nothing to do with what they did. It's one thing to be ashamed if you kill somebody. But if, if you do everything you can to preserve someone's life and you can't, it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. But it still feels like it. And, and the culture tells you it. And some cultures don't tell you that. Mm -hmm. But I had to do this because the blurting of the sense of guilt on top of what people in the ancient world called unbearable grief when half the children died before the age of five it happened to everybody yeah still they said it was unbearable and and the romans knew that and they didn't blame anybody they just knew it happens because there's a lot of diseases there's a lot of things that go wrong and survival is hard but in our culture it became something different and i wanted to separate what seemed to me valid experience from burdens that we don't have to suffer just by understanding that this has been sort of piled on us yeah just the way women you know have been taught to be inferior or how black people have been taught that they're inferior and no matter what they say today many who say it most loudly still feel that way i mean it is it is interesting to, you know, I'm thinking of, of sort of this in my own experience, you know, these extreme, uh, these extreme emotions that we can't help but feel, right? you know, I mean, that's, it's almost, especially here, we live in a culture where extreme emotions are kind of frowned upon, you know, it's yeah. maybe, and if not frowned upon, at least sort of like, keep that over there, you know, it's yeah. like, and it is, it's almost, you could almost classify it with a religious experience in the same way that we sort of say well that's you know yeah that's understandable you know go to church on sunday but if you if if you know the angel comes down and starts talking to you then we're gonna lock you up you know um and it's it's sort of like okay well have your have your grief but you know you i think people are very uncomfortable with just sitting with that and sitting with the extreme discomfort of course that it brings for other people too because none of us like to be reminded that we all walk closer to death than we'd like to imagine, you know? Well, we'd like to not. But also in these secret texts, there's a sense of openness to what I call experiences I can't explain because now I've had some of those. And I went to a conference about experiences I can't explain with psychiatrists, with people who, who say they've had a UFO experience with, um, that's a great with time. scholars of religion uh with many other people who have had experiences that they can't explain <clears throat> and i know they happen and it's kind of part of the normal human experience but 
I at least was taught that those things don't happen at all um, or to avoid them. But this is part of who we are as people. It's also how we create meaning, you know? And that's what I mean, it's about imagination. So it's often the most imaginative artistic people who are most susceptible to those kinds of experiences. Mm -hmm. These texts, I was mentioning this beautiful Iranian woman I was with last night at a party, um, marvelous woman. She once wrote a poem in a kind of ecstatic state. And she sent me the poem. And I said, I can't believe this. This is so much like a poem 2,000 years ago in this collection. Oh, wow. You seen the poem? It's called Thunder. Oh, I, well, I, read, I haven't mind. read the poem, but I Thunder, read it. Thunder, complete mind. mind. And it's about herself experiencing herself with all of her contradictions. Like Thunder speaks as a divine energy that comes from God, uh, a feminine energy in the universe who is both good and evil, who is both war and peace, foolish and wise. Um, she, she, she's all, she encompasses all the opposites as we all do in many ways. She's not just good or bad at all. She's, she's like energy, mm. you know, which is essential and it can be deadly, it can be and can be wonders. So that you know, it's interesting now. I feel that sort of the quest for self-acceptance has really become a major thing, and it's like kind of a hot topic right now. And uh, just you know, sort of mental health talk, and I think there's a lot more awareness around mental health now, which is a great thing. But um, you know, just that that seems to be the ever sort of the quest now. You know, we sort of have moved from a society where everything is buttoned up. We don't like to look at ourselves or be different to you know more of a society where everyone's like okay well let's let's see where we're different let's try to embrace you know and clearly there's still relics from the past but you know it seems like we're moving in that maybe we're moving into more of a i think what you were saying before too that many people myself included are really not immersed in institutions the way people traditionally were my parents were they were either in a church or out of one if if you're Jewish, you're either practicing or not practicing. Um, many people are distancing themselves from those traditions in the kind of identification way in order to find out who they are and their own, their own experience more generally. And we have a global world, so you might connect with somebody from Indonesia in a way that neither of your cultures would anticipate. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's about your experience mm -hmm. and that person's experience, which might be very unexpected. So I think that's wonderful. I mean, I think that's where we are. Mm -hmm. Sort of this idea that we're, people will not say they believe in God or church, they don't go to churches. They're sort of done with that because those are very conservative institutions right now. Mm -hmm. I love some things about them. I love the music. Mm -hmm. I love the Christmas carols, all I, of that stuff. I love, I love you know, cathedrals. I so in Italy, every time I've been in Italy, you know, just being in beautiful old, you know, these buildings that were built to, you know. To create a space that opens you to transcendence. 
and they do. Yeah, I mean, you and walk then in and you're feel talking something. about experience. You're talking about how you feel, mm-hmm. and that's what they're built for, mm-hmm. and they contain that in a safe space it's not a wilderness where there are wolves out to bite you right it's it's a safe space and it's very powerful so i think we need to be aware of those feelings that draw you into that because i love that too i can't stay out of that but but also the boundaries you know how do we contain those experiences so we don't feel like we're crazy. Tanya Lorman is studying, as I said, people who have visions and voices, both in mental hospitals and in religious institutions, because they're not so different. Mm-hmm. But, they're, but they are different, mm-hmm. because some people are very troubled right. in those states, and other people may have experiences like that that are actually oh, very good for them. Mm-hmm. In the ancient world, they would ask a great saint like St. Anthony, how do you know when you have a dream, whether it comes from God or from the devil? This is in the second century where these texts come from. And he said, well, if it comes from the devil, it it may amaze you at first. But when it leaves, it will leave you terrified and frightened and feeling anxious. But if it's from God, it may overwhelm you with fear at first. But when it leaves you, if it's an angel, it will leave you with a sense of peace. And, And the experiences he's talking about happen to us. And... We don't need that language necessarily, but just to recognize that there are different ways to engage the human capacity for what we call spiritual experience, which I, I can't avoid. I'm sort of, I'm more susceptible to it than a lot of people. But how do you deal with it? Yeah. Well, it's, it almost seems if you can, it, it seems like it still comes back to sort of being able to be part of society so it's like you can have the experience yes. and go to work and you know do you know feed your kids whatever you got to do then that's okay that's great and maybe maybe it's even worthy of <laughs> a new a new religion who knows but uh if you cannot function in society if you're walking down the street screaming at everybody and or if you do commit violence you know then we gotta put you away well, yeah, and religion can do both. I mean, you can have violence in the, in the name of God. You can have people trying to kill people and uh, destroy a country in the name of God. Um, you can have uh, someone as steady and sane as Joe Biden, Catholic that he is, um, trying to do the right thing, trying to get health care for people who don't have it, trying to... Um, to legalize sexual activities of people who are not normal in the in the old-fashioned paradigm. Um, people, he's trying to make the world better for people. And it comes out of his Catholic tradition. I, I have a great respect for that. Well, it is, I mean, you know, this is so I prior to starting to read your work, I my knowledge of the New Testament was very slim. You know, like I said, I was not raised uh, within any kind of religious tradition and um 
uh, you know, it's been interesting. It's almost like uh, when I started watching Seinfeld much, much later in life yes. after it was, you know, or <laughs> syndication, I was like, oh, this is what people are talking about. <laughs> it, it really runs through, but, you know, but so much of it is about feeding the hungry and, and healing the sick and loving your neighbor and, and, you know, being a, a good person is what a lot of it comes down to. And I think it is very surprising, you know, when you read that to think about some of the things that are done in the name of Christianity. Um, well, and yes, and it, uh, the Catholic church is an example. I mean, the Protestants too, I mean, they, uh, they burn people at the stake. Catholics and Protestants, each other. <laughs> um, they burn Jews. Um, they condemn people and make them ashamed of themselves. Well, it's interesting um, too that or, even or they, or they, they give people blessings. Right. You know, there's a lot of elements. That's why I mentioned our Catholic president because I think he's embodying as well as he can under the circumstances some of the best aspects of that tradition yeah you know it's, it seems so strange to me that you know the christians were persecuted for you know pretty extremely for a while there and then you know as soon as um you know the orthodox church was created it was like and now we're going to sort of persecute you know yes. anyone who's yes. a christian that doesn't agree with us <laughs> exactly. it's a very it's kind did. of a very about they face did. They did. They destroyed all these texts, which which are really a wonderful reservoir of showing us that we have a much wider range of what we think of as ancient culture and Christianity and all of that. It's much more mixed with Judaism. It's much more mixed with probably Indian traditions that come out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, this stuff was translated into Egypt, Egyptian, into Coptic. Um, yeah, these people went on journeys from Greece to India to find out the, the learning of the Hindus mm -hmm. and bring it back. So there's a lot of mixed culture thing, very much like the world we live in, in which people are aware of a very wide range of different cultures. None of us live in a vacuum as much as we'd sometimes like to imagine that we do. It's yeah. always, and there's never really been a vacuum. I mean, maybe in the very, very early days of humanity when people were just kind of roaming, you know, <laughs> the, but but even then, you know, you, nobody was staying in one place really. So you'd come across other groups, other yeah. families. And and then the other question you raised about finding meaning. I was always very much influenced by a book that you, you may know this, Jack, the book, and you may know this, called Man's Search for Meaning. Do you know it? I don't. Oh, it's it's a brilliant book. <laughs> to, to, to be quite simple about it, um, and show you it's uh, it's just ninety pages. Huh? Um, it's written by a Jewish psychiatrist uh, about what happened to him in the death camps of Auschwitz. Oh, Victor Frank, Victor. Frank. Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, I haven't read it. Man's search for meaning, yes. and he wrote yeah. ninety pages, and he didn't have any religious beliefs particularly, but he had a vision of his wife who was in the camp. Uh, he didn't know if she was alive or dead. She died there actually, um, and it didn't matter to him because it was the sense of love he had for her that got him through. Wow. And he, he talks about that and he says, how do people survive unimaginable or especially humanly inflicted things? 
horrible. Um, he said the only way they survive is if they have a sense of some meaning that gets them through. And he said, it doesn't matter what it is. It can be very personal to you. Uh, it doesn't have to be religious per se. Mm -hmm. It can be an obligation to a family member to take them through a illness or something like that. Uh, it can be making the world better. It's just like those people, I think, for example, of those high school students who in Florida, so many others too, who saw their classmates being shot to death in front of them. And they didn't just go crazy. They didn't just scream and yell, which they had to do surely as well. They're trying to stop crazy infatuation Americans have with guns in order to spare other people the horror that they had went through. So that's finding meaning, he said, in a terrible event. Yeah. They, people will try to take that very event. And that's what I tried to do with my own experiences, to write about it in a way that it might be maybe useful. You know? Useful. And um, I, well, I was going to say, I know I do, and I, I have found it very useful. And I do think, um, you know, when, when Jack, uh, asked me to do this podcast, you know, the, the language was, you know, she's a, a hero to interview. And, okay. you know, I, I think I, I've always, I had never, I just never think in those terms. So I, I didn't have, I didn't really have a hero ready to think about. Um, and I sort of went to the very, you know, what we kind of tend to think about as heroes, you know, people, firefighters and, you know, sort of the 9-11 uh, heroes yeah. and um, people who are fighting you know, to solve world hunger. And, um, and I was introduced to your book this summer, just through some personal circumstances. And, you know, I do, I find your writing heroic because I think you've written about some personal experiences that were, I think you describe in your book, like being burned alive. And I imagine yes. it, that that is exactly. Yeah, that, you know. that just, yeah. And, and, uh, and and what you said is, is it could be those kinds of certain kinds of experiences, the way we interpret them and take them on as if, as if we were somehow at fault. Uh, you said it can be a cancer on the soul. And I thought that was very touching because I thought there are harms done to people's souls. And religious institutions have done that. And they've also helped heal them. Yeah. So we need to discriminate. You know, it's it's not one or thing or the other. It's um, these traditions are a necessary part of every society, but there are elements that harm people, and there are elements that nurture people. And um, it's our job to sort those out. Yeah, and you know, I think that. Um through, you know, both just sort of bringing these, these ancient texts that, you know, didn't get, didn't get a lot of spotlight by bringing them into the spotlight, <laughs> you know, you're helping a lot of people. And, and I think also just by writing about your personal experience, I think that's such a brave thing to do. And I read a quote from you in a, another interview where uh, I can't remember what the question was exactly, but it, it was, it was, you know, saying something about how you have been heroic you know and um i didn't say no no you didn't you wrote but i think your response to it was that you know walking through grief 
is heroic. Well, I had two children to raise, you know, and I just thought I can't, you know, I can't just fall apart now because I have two very small people who are depending on me. My husband had died too, so, you know, that was, I don't imagine, I don't remember, I don't know how I did it, but I did it because those little children needed someone there. And you were a hero for them. Well, I mean, and just even, even if you hadn't had them to watch, and just, I think just, you know, I, I, I've also been reading this book, uh, now I can't remember the author's name, but it's, it, it has to do with a lot of Greek myths and sort of, the, and actually women in Greek myths and sort of the way that they've been mis, misportrayed perhaps, but um, I don't know if that's a word, uh, but, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, about Greek heroes, you know, and just mm-hmm. sort of, I wonder if some of those myths they come out of, you know, this very human suffering that we all experience. We're all touched by it. And we hope that we never will be, but most of us are. And, uh, you know, we kind of come up with these stories of people who, you know, went through, walked through hell, you know, or, or, or fought monsters, you know, and it kind of, it mirrors our experience, our very human experience. And fought monsters and come out with a kind of heroism. Um, Victor Frankl did that, and those Portland school children did that, and many other people who, who see terrible injustice done um, are working to change it and working to, to, to you know, transform. And to keep building rather than... Absolutely. Because I, mean, I think it, a common feeling in grief is that everything is falling apart and falling down, and to kind of have the strength to uh, to keep moving forward for your children, for your loved ones, you know, for just for humanity. You know, that's kind of right. What what uh, that's how we that's how we move forward as a as a as a group as a species. As a species. You know? <laughs> Um, yeah, and it makes me think of a quote that I've uh, I know that you love, and I've really come to love too, which is from the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, I yes. think you know what I'm talking about. You'll say it better than me, but about bringing forth what is within you. This is Jack. This I don't know if you know, but in the Gospel of Thomas, it claims to be the secret teaching of Jesus, and half of this little text—it's only 14 pages—is just the same as anything we find in the New Testament, and half of it is different. So some of the sayings are different. And when I came across the saying in that collection, Jesus said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I thought, oh, it just happens to be true. I mean, you have to believe it. It's just, it's true. And you can bring forth things you, you couldn't imagine that you could live through. Mm-hmm. that's surprising yeah and people live through all kinds of things i mean i'm very much aware because i've never had the experience of, of dealing with um violence in any personal way um i can't imagine how people in ukraine are being shot at and dealing with horrible things being done to people on intentional yeah intentional mm-hmm. i think it's bad enough what happens to us unintentionally but to have people intentionally inflict harm, it is, I mean, do you think it would just make you enraged, you know? 
and it does, but it also some people can respond to that in a way that that is uh, harmful, and some people respond to it in a way that is heroic mm -hmm. and often helps a lot of other people powerful. Yeah. Uh, there's another book that I read this year. Um, who now? Oh, if I can't remember this guy's name, I'm going to be angry with myself. But uh, he, it, the book is called Humankind. He's a, oh, he's a Dutch. Uh, he's a Dutch. He wrote to you. What is, I haven't seen it. Um, well, it's, it's basically, uh, I, I found this guy because there's a great clip of him arguing with, um, I think, Tucker Carlson or somebody about <laughs> just like, you know, how taxing you know, not increasing taxes on the rich is sort of a ridiculous thing. But um, uh, so he's, he's very brilliant and I hope his name will come to me. But um, this book, Humankind, is sort of making the argument. And, you know, it, I find it interesting because he wrote it before the pandemic, before the war in Ukraine, but certainly not before a lot of horrible things in the United happened. Um, and his argument is, uh, you know, that we, we sort of, it's kind of the negativity bias where we tend to focus on, you know, negative news stories and, and the horrible things that people do. Um, but really on a whole, human beings are, are good. And we, you know, it, a lot of the things that go underreported are when horrible things happen, the way that neighbors yeah. come together and the way that people lift each other up and, and save one another and, and absolutely know, celebrate one another. Um, uh, and he also, he says that the, um, are, you know, kind of the origin of, of humanity, the way that Homo sapiens uh, sort of ended up being the whatever humanoid that, that outlasted all the other ones is that we were uh, kinder. We sort of had the ability to form relationships. It wasn't all it's positive social bonds. Right. I mean, this is countering the Darwinian narratives that I grew up with, which is we're all fighting to survive and we're killing each other off so that we can have each other's territory right <laughs> or food or whatever it is and the other story is it's about collaboration society you, you've talked a lot to you about creating societies how what fosters what fosters um connection and well-being and joy yeah joy is a word that i've, I've thought a lot about and that you know i know you uh, mentioned that too just sort of finding the capacity for joy you know yeah to especially after walking through something that is just the unbearable never loss. Been happy yeah. again, but actually actually things transform yeah sometimes. yeah and i'm so glad that i got to meet you and interview on a very happy day <laughs> yeah. you're celebrating a new marriage yes isn't that amazing after i wrote about a lot of loss of my wonderful husband um that was decades ago and other losses and and now I just found somebody that I had you know, known in high school and we just got married and we were at a party last night people yeah. celebrating dancing having a marvelous making music <laughs> yeah and it's it is kind of all this human experience you know it's just a very crazy it's just crazy the different sides of the spectrum that we find ourselves on um, well they, they are extreme 
extreme. If you read William James again, it's a very good book. Yeah, I want it, you know, extreme. I heard you mention in an interview and obviously mentioned again today, and I was thinking I really need to, because when I, I was kind of just trying to get through it, I think. You don't have to read the whole thing. I have, I keep stopping when it gets to something just that I find them kind of weird. I think I'm brought up a little too promising to appreciate St. Teresa, but but when the opening parts about the reality of the unseen, mm-hmm. and he's countering Freud, who basically says religion is a delusion. It's only for children who are afraid of the dark and they have to create a big daddy and mommy up in the sky, actually just a daddy, um, to make everything okay. Mm-hmm. And they have to have this little pretend between them and their imaginary person up there. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. I mean, there's some truth in that psychological compensation. But that's not the whole story. That's mm-hmm. not. That's not the, the sum of religious experience at all. Yeah. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of celebration. Yeah. And it almost seems that you know that maybe is the way that um, you know what whatever whatever religion looks like to a person it. it I can almost say it's, it, I feel like it's the, the definition of it is sort of whatever helps you to be able to find joy, because it's almost like, it's almost the way that we bargain, you know, it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to have to, if I'm going to have to know that these, the terrible things are possible, you know, because none of us get a guarantee, right? You know, we never know what's going to happen. Um, it's almost religion is almost and and again i'm not talking about any one particular religion or or any sort of you know the the beliefs but just what we find that that gives us joy that that gives us that capability Mm -hmm. to keep walking and and you know and smile again and to to experience the other side of the spectrum even though we know how close we could be you know oh yeah and we always are (laughs) just yes yeah Tolstoy also wrote a wonderful biography about called The Confession. Oh, yeah. I've never read Tolstoy. I've, there's a lot of... Well, he, he writes... <laughs> You're getting a reading list today. I know. I, uh, <laughs> he, writes, he writes very long books. This one is only about 90 pages. Today. Okay, okay. 90 it's, pages it's, I can do. <laughs> it's interesting. It's about his own sort of crisis in his life when he felt suicidal and depressed and um, came out of it by a sense of longing for God. Mm. And even my friend, the anthropologist at Stanford said, well, okay, I'm secular and Jewish, but, <laughs> and, and I called her up and I said, Tanya, I love your book. And she said, well, it's the difference between an anthropologist who's looking for God and someone who thinks that all people who do that are crazy. And, <laughs> and she's the first kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know there's just a lot of wonderful things to explore there are a lot of wonderful things to explore in the world <laughs> and relationships to have i think that for me is what becomes the most important thing is the way we can connect with other people mm-hmm. and and that book was one way of doing that with experience that i couldn't otherwise share can i Sort of that maybe this is just a therapeutic thing, but I have to write it. And then after I wrote it, 
what else? I mean, it doesn't make me look good, but it's just what really <laughs> it doesn't make you look bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's yeah, me too. <laughs> and and I love because I think in the final, I just reread the last chapter of it um, last night actually, oh. and you know, and you do talk about how connection. You know, we find sometimes you know these these terrible things that happen that we feel like we can't live it through. You know, those are those are what help us to connect to other people. Yes, I mean, I felt as I said in, in a moment of real anguish that vision of connection with all other beings, and there's so much uh, also Jack in these texts, which is about how connected we are with all, with all humans, with all beings, the way Buddhist teaching speaks about compassion for all living beings. Um, that kind of connectedness with nature and the rest of our species and any other species, um, it seems to me is, is what this kind of religious literature talks about. When you talked about mysticism, well, it's a slippery word. But often it is a sense of connected, feeling connected and whole mm -hmm. because you're not alone and isolated because you're joined with a sense of other people and you experience that as a connection instead of feeling isolated. And Because when awful things happened to me, I felt stigmatizing. None of my friends had this happen. Right, I'm, right. I mean, I'm the only one and this is awful. Um, but that's not true at all anymore. Yeah. And that doesn't even matter that much because other things, things happen to everyone. Right, yeah, yeah. You don't get to, a lot of times you don't know that things have happened to other people. Yeah, we don't talk yeah, about absolutely. That happens a lot. Yeah. And as my late husband used to say, things, everyone has something like this in their life. And I, and I thought, this. I said, well, not this, but something. And I didn't, I, I resented it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was right. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess he was. But it's very good to talk and, you know, explore these things. Yes, yeah, and writing about it and writing a song about it. So that's right. Yeah, oh, well, so now we're, now we're going to write a song. No. That. <laughs> <laughs> what my present husband did. But... No. Is he a musician? <laughs> He's not a musician. Um, however, he spent the last 35 years um, on the staff of a rock and roll band. No, no way. Of somebody we knew when we were in high school, and that was Jerry Garcia. I read that you knew Jerry Garcia. We did. And so he's been working for the Great Jerry, Jerry was in the accident that I read about. That's right. And so was my current husband. They were very close friends. Wow. And he, they both survived, obviously. Yeah. And uh, Jerry started the group, and I thought much later, he started a group called The Grateful Dead. And I, I was off in graduate school. I was not in the rock and roll world at all. And um, I thought, oh, that's why he called it The Grateful Dead. It's because of the accident. Wow. And it was because of that. Wow. So he's not a musician, but he knows how to dance, and he loves music. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I'll have to tell my mother this. She's a huge, huge really? grateful dead. Yeah. I didn't see that coming. Well, his name is Alan Tristan. Alan Tristan. Did, did, there's a movie that your mother might know called um, Long Strange Trip. 
It's it's a I'm I'm familiar with it too. Yeah. I mean I I am well, not a huge well, grateful Ellen, that I'm not as big as my mom, but I I, I think you know. Ellen is the producer of that. No way. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean he didn't pay for it. He helped put it together because yeah. he was there. He was a staff member. Wow. So, yeah, part of music. Music was very much part of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I just, and that was about bringing people together. He said that whole community, I mean, I was somewhere else. So I thought it was just a bunch of people getting sewn together. But, <laughs> but that said, was part of it. <laughs> he said, well, that could facilitate um, the way that people came together and that Jerry himself was a Catholic and very, no. oh, yes, he had a virgin mother right there. Um, he wasn't practicing Catholic when we knew him, but it was his culture and his tradition. And he he knew what he was doing, trying to bring people together in a positive community, mm -hmm. affirming each other and celebrating mm -hmm. life and and the kindness that was often expressed in that group. Mm -hmm. People helping each other and yeah, greeting each other and you know, it was like there's a great generosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of a religious experience in its own way. It was for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's funny how it ties in with the themes of this conversation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> um, yes. So, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think that music, you know, has obviously... This is a picture of Alan. This one. Oh yeah, well, because <laughs> old hippie. To, yeah. <laughs> well, you. I mean, you have to look the part, you know, to be yeah. working with yeah, people. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's when he first, he first came to Colorado to visit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great picture. You're so Jack. So you going? Are you going on a honeymoon? Uh, well, not now because we were too busy. But he's this guy here. Oh, okay. Uh. We're going to go to Turkey in, oh, in May and visit some friends um, on the side of a mountain and talk. Wow. Spend time. That's wonderful. Yeah. Mm. Well, you, the, the song should be ready then. You should have a honeymoon song. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But when does the song have to be ready by? Well, we have no deadline, but uh, did you have any lyrical ideas? Yeah. I mean, uh, Amanda is a wonderful lyricist. Ah, well, thank you. I, um, so the other reason that I really wanted to have a trip around this interview is because um, I find that it's, I have a three-year-old at home and, and oh, she's wonderful. very, as you know, time consuming. Um, oh, yes. What's her name? Her name is Tuvi. T-U-V-I, yeah. What, what is the name? Um, so it, it means dove or perhaps pigeon in, in Estonian. Estonia. Yeah, I we I wanted Tuvi. It's not just a dove. Yeah, so I I really wanted to name her um, Paloma, which Spanish word for dove. And um, my husband did not like that name, and he asked me what what do you like about that name? And I said, well, you know, I think it's beautiful, but also I like that it means dove. And he pulled up. I mean, the wonders of the internet now. He pulled up. <laughs> really had every translation of dove, and we found Tuvi, and sort of we were like, I don't. It's yeah, it sounds like a name. It's kind of pretty. I don't know. And we both kind of liked it. And that was, that was, you know, it was about six months before she was born. So um, we had time to think about it. But that's that. And now she's she's very much too beat. So, it's, you know, it's, it's funny how kids grow to their names. But um, uh, it's funny because I have a friend whose husband does Balkan studies. And he, um, that's like his, he's an academic. And 
he uh, was at a yeah, like a conference with um, a Balkan studies conference. I don't even know how to talk about that. I don't know what they were doing, but um, it, there were some Estonian uh, scholars there and he you know, mentioned that to them that a friend of his had a daughter named Tuvi and what did they think about that? And they were kind of like, oh, I, yeah, it's not a name, but it's, it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was just glad that they didn't say like, oh, that's actually a slang word that we use for mm. <laughs> something not so great. So it's like, keep her out of Estonia. Um, but yeah, so that's, anyway, so I, I find that I don't write as much at home these days. Um, mm. but I was well, hoping, I was hoping to kind of have a few days now I'm going to go up and visit friends in New York and then I'll um, have a night. I'm going to stay in a hotel to split up the drive home on the way back and I'm hoping to uh, be able to get some get some ideas down on the long drive. And, It'll happen. Yeah. And well, good. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you've given us so much inspiration for it. Yeah. I, I said to Elena and Ina, I said, you know, I honestly think that even just from reading her books, there's there's so much there. So mm. I was excited to talk and just see what where the conversation led us. Well, all over the map. All over the map. <laughs> I don't even know. I think we actually talked about most of my questions today. So. Yeah. Well, very wonderful. Yeah. I'm glad you. It's a long way for you to come, but yeah. Well, it's, I think it's good to do that. I mean, I've taught on Zoom for a year and a half, and yeah, and it's very useful to see you. It's very different from not seeing you and just having. Yeah. But being in person is something I've really come to appreciate a lot. Yeah. That's nice. That was, yeah, I wanted to be able to be in the room. I just feel like it's nice, especially maybe after the pandemic, it's nice to be able to like hear somebody breathe, kind of get a, get a sense of <laughs> vitality. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in Italy, so I can't go around all these places. Most of my guests are in America, so I'm very grateful for, for Zoom. But yeah, I'm, do you live I there? am jealous. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Were you born there? No, I'm English, but... Uh, my girlfriend's Italian. I've been here ten years now, so. Ah, very nice. Yeah. Well, Alan is English too. Oh, okay. Grew up in London. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, you have to go over to back to visit. <laughs> oh yes, I do. I miss. I for for whatever reason, you know, it's like all the times that we've toured in the UK. Um, the guys in my band are always like. They complain they're all very tall and they always complain and everything is all the doors are short and the towers are too small. <laughs> Nobody gives you enough water to drink and the beer is warm and you know they have all these complaints. And uh they have all said to me at some point, like, I really miss touring in the UK. <laughs> mm. We haven't been. Uh, I, I miss it. I but I, I always miss sort of the minutia of touring. Like uh we I don't know, Jack, if you ever go to Morrison's. Uh I have been, yeah. Yeah, so we, we always eat breakfast at Morrison's when we're over there. <laughs> we get the oh, wow. We had a tour manager when we first started touring over there who would, that was just, he lived and died by breakfast at Morrison's. So it was very affordable. And uh, and I, I miss that. I'm like, I really, I would love to go to like this supermarket cafe and like get a cup of tea. I guess yeah, it sounds funny for me, for me to eat, but then it's for us to say to go to, you know, the 7-Eleven or the... Exactly. It would be like... Yeah, for pancakes, yeah. I want to go to America and just go to yeah. the 7-Eleven and have a slushy. You know? <laughs> well, so, all right. Well, let me know all right. when you come up with some inspiration. I will. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch. And I guess okay. talking 
Jack. Yeah, we'll talk. keep talking by email and uh, collaborate remotely. Yes. Well, I'm sorry you couldn't be here, but thank you for, for asking me to do this and bringing it into being. My pleasure. <laughs> Lovely to meet you both. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Saw Jesus in a parking lot. He said to give the world what I got, but nobody believed me. Yeah, they said I was crazy. Now it's gonna turn me to stone like milk for the baby. Never came home, it's the saddest thing that you've ever known. And can nobody save me? Sometimes the heart breaks just like an egg hatching. Tiny and barely breathing. Hungry for some meaning. Sometimes the world laughs. It's trying to hold the tears back. Sometimes we're lonely. Sometimes we're only dreaming. We were short on miracles. Guess they needed them for the war. So we said, We don't believe in miracles anymore. Sometimes the truth just seems so ugly 